This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Long-term care home indoor visits were first allowed on July 22nd, but some loved ones of residents are complaining about the rules. The provincial government guidelines allow for physical contact between a masked indoor visitor and a resident, but some nursing home owners are not allowing this out of concern for a resurgence of COVID-19. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Monday, I spoke with our Zoomer squad about these concerns. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. We have heard that, that some homes have taken extreme precautions to protect residents. Um, I think it's important to, in this discussion, distinguish between sort of casual visitors and what many are calling essential caregivers, which is oftentimes a family member. And that's really the issue is, is not being able to touch your loved one. Now, if you're outside, the restrictions are much less uh, restrictive than when you're inside. If you're inside a home, you need to ensure that you've had testing within the previous two weeks and that that test came back negative. You need to be dressed in full uh, personal protective gear, including a mask and gloves. Um, and initially, when the announcement was made, we understood that people would be allowed, essential caregivers would be allowed to actually support an individual in the home, get in and out of bed, maybe help them uh, bathe, maybe support them with with eating and, and, and so on and so forth. But we are now hearing stories that impact that that's not the case, that some homes are being even more restrictive. David, would you like to comment on what's going on? It seems like there's just the interpretation of the rules that have put out by the provincial government. Some uh, owners of the homes are being more uh, restrictive and conservative. Others are going to the letter of the law and what's been recommended. I, I don't know uh, that we should be surprised because if you take into account the tremendous variation in the size of the homes, the number of people in the homes, what are the facilities, how old, how new, how big are the rooms, how many people uh, can gather in a room, and if there's uh, two visitors in a room, how much space is that left over? It, it, it's just all over the place. And if you take a look at uh, visiting rules in a non-COVID environment, whether it's, you know, uh, maternity wing or, or visitors in that post-surgery situation, those are also, we don't think about it because we understand that each hospital does its own thing based on its own facilities. So to me, this is completely to be expected. It's very, very unfortunate because it goes along with the report we've also had, and I believe we're going to discuss, about how understaffed all these homes are, thus making it even more problematic if a loved one who has been a caregiver uh, is not allowed to, um, you know, apply that caregiving help. Right. Uh, Peter, would you like to comment? Um, the um, homes, I guess, are uh, worried about new outbreaks. <clears throat> and, um, 
you know, we saw we saw in the last time around a, a number of class action lawsuits and individual lawsuits, and I guess they are covering their backs and and are being extremely cautious with these visits just to ensure that they show at least that they did everything possible to um, preclude another outbreak. Mm-hmm. So I assume that's going on, and um, you know. Uh, it, unfortunately, it impacts the family caregivers, but uh, I, I, I'm sure their lawyers have told them to, you know, get very serious, get very tough, and show that they're being tough in case uh, there are future lawsuits. That's our Monday Zoomer Squad. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It was all the news on Monday, that Brampton House Party of 200 people last Saturday. We all wanted to know, how could this happen in the middle of a pandemic? I was joined on Monday by Dr. Ray Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. First, though, I spoke with Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, who was as annoyed about this party as the neighbors surrounding it. And you know what? That's why it, it got exposed. Like, you know, they, they were trying to conceal it. They were trying to put up some barriers that people couldn't see in. Uh, but I don't know what they're thinking. Obviously, the, the amount of cars parked was going to be uh, a huge red flag, and, they, and the neighbors called in. The neighbors reported to bylaw and, and PRP. We, we don't want that in our community. We want people to abide by the advice of health professionals. We're in stage two. You can't have that many people in your home. It's not, it's not appropriate. Um, I remember when we first came out with our emergency uh, bylaw that had fines that go up to 100000 And I was asked the question, could I envision a scenario where a $100,000 fine would be levied? And I said, it would have to be pretty egregious. Well, this is why we have such a, a range of, of fines, because there will be egregious examples. And, and, and this is an example of one that is going to be one of the much higher fines. Ultimately, it's going to go to the court because a fine of this size, um, there's procedural um, requirements, and they'll be able to present their, the, the charge will be able to present their their case. But, you know, frankly, the evidence is irrefutable. And, you know, they're going to be owners of a $100,000 fine. Without divulging, um, I guess, the privacy of the accused, are the young people, were they organizing this party? Were parents away? What's the dynamic here? Well, I understand it was predominantly 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. And my message to, to them is, you may not appreciate the severity of the virus on you. Um, but each single person that went to that party, they're putting their parents, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, their neighbors at risk. It is selfish um, and it is reckless. Up next, a comment. Uh, one of our regular epidemiologists during the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Ray Dionandon, also associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Are you surprised by these parties that are popping up in the GTA in Ottawa? Hundreds of people that, in this most recent I'm one? I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm disappointed, but not surprised. And, and why are you not surprised? Well, Part of it is we're rewriting the public health communications textbook in real time in the wake of this pandemic, and the things that worked in previous health emergencies are not working or applicable now. And the extent to which we failed that messaging is manifesting now in these behaviors. So we have this, this element of um, 
people misunderstanding this disease. They think it's an old people's disease. So if you're young, you're not susceptible, which is not true. You are susceptible, just to a lesser extent. And more importantly, as we know, you can transmit it to other people who are even more susceptible. So the, the aspect of heroism has been missed from the messaging. And um, we need to focus on the carrot and the stick. The, the stick is the scolding, you know, telling people they're being bad and mm-hmm. using the law to compel certain behavior. But the carrot is missing. That is, you can be heroic by being at home. You can be heroic and save lives if you distance yourself. Now, the combination of carrot and stick will work for most people, but there's going to be that intransigent small sector of individuals who will still behave poorly. And for them, that's that's the problem. And fortunately with this disease, it's not really tolerant of a lot of deviation from the plan. So it is, it is deeply worrying and uh, we are struggling all the time with how to deploy the messaging more more effectively. And do you think some form of that messaging of heroism might work on those who are in their 20s and 30s who seem at the moment to be the ones suffering the most COVID fatigue? I think for the younger ones, like the teenagers, that seems to resonate with them, believe it or not, and the early 20s. It's the late 20s, early 30s that maybe do not respond as well to that kind of narrative. And the COVID fatigue is a real thing. It's, uh, I, I am sympathetic, especially to young single people who need to get out and socialize and to be intimate with strangers. But it's part of it is the misinformation campaign that makes our job so hard. This is, the misinformation campaign includes things like people saying it's not as bad as the flu or I can't die of it or it's overblown or the first wave is over. So what are we worried about? So if it weren't for that enormous hurdle of bad information and outright lies that occur in social media to a large extent, we would have an easier job. But that's the challenge right now is countering the counter-narrative. Dr. Ray Dianandin, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This past Friday, Toronto and Peel Region joined most of the rest of Ontario in entering stage three of the COVID-19 economic reopening plan. And while we are allowed to enjoy more amenities... How do we best go about conducting ourselves during this change? Libby asked this of Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, along with Dr. Susie Hota, medical director of infection protection and control at the University Health Network. I think vigilance needs to remain through all the stages of reopening. So, you know, just because we are going forward to a different stage doesn't mean that we can um, go beyond that, first of all. Um, reopening doesn't mean that we're um, able to go back to what we used to remember as normal. And, you know, things like physical distancing are more important than ever to maintain when it's appropriate to do so or necessary to do so, as well as masking and other infection prevention and control type measures. Dr. Furness? I agree. I think any opportunity that we can have to limit the amount of physical contact we have, bars may be opening, that doesn't mean we need to go. So I think really trying to imagine a new normal in at least the short to medium term where we're limiting physical contact despite the opening, I think would be safer and, well, you know, vigilance is the byword. What do you make of the loosened restrictions on the numbers of big gatherings, uh, albeit with physical distancing? Uh, it's, it's gone way up from 10. 
Yeah, I mean, I think from my, my perspective, if people are able to maintain the distancing that's required, then it could be okay. Um, but, you know, it is opening up a bit of a can of worms. And, and the larger the gathering becomes, the harder it is to kind of monitor what people are doing and control what's happening around you. So it is a bit of a slippery slope. And I, I do think, um, you know, over time, I worry about people losing their, their vigilance and keeping up the physical distancing. So I think that's something we'll have to continue to reevaluate over time and make sure it's being done safely. Dr. Furness, is that a mistake? I, I'm more concerned, I think, that there could be, you know, some confusion in the messaging. So, you know, if I know people's names, then it's 10 people. But if I don't, it's 50, you know, in terms of what a gathering means. And I think it, 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 can, it can really lead, as, as Dr. Hoda said, to a slippery slope. And I, I, I also worry that, you know, we know that it's large gatherings that really cause bad outbreaks, that really cause big problems. And I would avoid those until next year if we could. There's masks and some people using shields. And I have heard from some people that the, the shield really isn't as good as, as the mask. Uh, who has a view on that? I guess my view is I don't feel like we have enough data yet to really um, give us the kind of confidence that we would need to say it's either equivalent or it's uh, not as good or even maybe better than, than wearing masks. Like it takes years and, and, and quite extensive research to truly understand how protective some of these measures are. I mean, there's some potential advantages on top of masks that face shields have and that they provide some eye coverage, um, which uh, would protect you from, you know, if you get exposure to your eye. And But one of the disadvantages is that, you know, some of your, the, the bottom might be open and if it shifts around, you may be still susceptible to some, some spray or exposure. Dr. Furness? I agree, and I would think furthermore that because I see face masks being worn, face shields being worn rather high, remembering that, that a main benefit of masks is keeping your droplets to yourself, uh, face shields don't, I don't think would necessarily do nearly as good a job. But, but I agree we don't have the data. I, until we have the data, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say masks, not, not face shields, seem, seem to me intuitively to be better. Colin Furness, what would you like to leave us with as we head into stage three? I think the most important thing we can do is avoid crowds and avoid situations where people are indoors without wearing masks together. That's what COVID really likes. And I think we can have a lot of quote-unquote normal life if we, if we just really attend to that. That's what will keep people safe. And Dr. Hoda? Yeah, I concur with that. I think, you know, we, it, these are all our choices to make. So we will do as well as we choose to do or as poorly as we choose to do. So, you know, it's the, the choices in our hands, and um, I hope that we, we play it wisely. Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Colin Furness, Infection Control Epidemiologist and Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. The federal Liberals' emergency wage subsidy has officially been extended until at least December. Bill C-20 was given final approval by the the Senate on Monday night. The following day, our Tuesday strategy panelist weighed in on the wage subsidy extension. While filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by Charles Bird, managing principal of the Toronto office of Earnscliffe Strategy Group, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village. 
the Liberals our right to extend that wage subsidy. I can tell you that over the past five months that we've been closed, the wage subsidy was the only thing that kept us going uh, for our employees. Our revenues are down by 80% and uh, likely to stay down for some time as people, because uh, we operate a gym, of course, um, as well as day camps and other programs. So while we reopen our facility, uh, we're not looking at full capacity for at least another year. And that wage subsidy is critical to help us keep our employees working. Have you had to let go of employees uh, who've since gone on CERB, or are they mostly waiting to come back? Yeah, we let go 150 employees, and some are on CERB. Uh, Some we were able to recall for camp, and some we will be able to recall when uh, we get the go-ahead to open um, our fitness facility area. But uh, there's a number of employees we're just not going to be able to to recall because we just don't have the work for them to do. Right. Uh, John, what are your feelings about the wage subsidy and this being the cornerstone of the recovery plan? Yeah, I think I think, Jane, that the government is right on this. I uh, I've often um, as much as I'm critical of the government at times, I've also been very, very complimentary of them and how they've handled this at the beginning. And, And one of the programs that I thought was was smart and did save a lot of jobs and, and companies and organizations and charities like Karen was just alluding to that, that saved them was the wage subsidy program. So the fact that they're extending that is, is good news. Um, I think that, you know, there's a couple of other things that I, I would say that I would compliment the government on. One is, is that the second one is the fact that they're still keeping the U S border closed. I think that's an important, I think more and more Canadians want it closed. And then, and I actually thought, I thought that the smart move, was not to allow the Jays to have uh, to come to, to, to Toronto. I think that was a very smart move given mm-hmm. what's happening with the ML, MLB. But but on this issue, though, the wage subsidy is the one that is most effective. I think the, the one that they have to really kind of look to and, and, and try to curb is, is the CERB, is the emergency relief one, where I think that obviously as much as it helped at the beginning, I think it's it's proven to be a bit more of a hindrance to, to small businesses and to companies where, you know, they're finding that more and more employees that have been have been you know unable to work are are relying on that more than than the opportunity of going back into uh, the offices where they're allowed to. So uh, it's a, it's a fine balance between the two programs, but this wage subsidy one I think is the right call and 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 the one that has actually saved a lot of businesses from from closing. Charles, it seems like there is a unanimous approval and endorsement of this wage subsidy continuing until December. At least December. Good to see unanimous praise for the federal government. Let me tell you that. Right <laughs> now. I, I would also note. I'm not sure if John is saying um, curb the Serb, but it is um, arguably the last big legislative item that the federal government has to figure out in the coming weeks because um, Serb benefits uh, expire for a good number of Canadians at the end of August. And there's a delicate legislative two-step that's required to not only extend the CERB, which, as people know, is the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, but also um, uh, coordinate it with uh, employment insurance as well, because obviously uh, there have to be some uh, provisions made to get people off the CERB, perhaps in a graduated fashion, um, in a way that encourages folks to get back to work um, as jobs become available, but I, but any notion that we should just curb the CERB because of the numbers game of um, boy, we're spending too much on it, really uh, neglects to see the plight of a great many Canadians who've lost their jobs. They haven't benefited from the Canadian employment wage, the, the employee wage subsidy, and they are without they are without means at the moment. And so this this program is absolutely critical. 
Our Tuesday strategy panel, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of the Toronto Office of Earnscliffe Strategy Group, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. There is some disturbing news about the fallout from the pandemic. It has brought with it a huge increase in food insecurity in our community. And three quarters of the new clients using food banks began accessing them because of the COVID-19 pandemic. On Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by Daily Bread Food Bank CEO Neil Hetherington to discuss. New clients. This uh, past month versus the previous went from 2,000 to 6,000 wow. uh, new new clients. And that's on top of the uh, 15,000 per week that we are serving. So it's, uh, the numbers are, are um, unprecedented and troubling. Prior to COVID, we saw one in four households of food bank users, having their, their, one in four had their, their children going hungry at least once uh, per month. That number has shot up to one in three going hungry at least once per month, not having a meal for, for a day uh, on a monthly basis. And um, you just, you know, you think about the horrific decisions that are having to be made when an income is not present uh, mm-hmm. that, that forces a parent to not have the necessities that they need to make sure that there are three meals available for their uh, for their kids every single uh, day. So we are distributing, uh, right now we have distributed uh, a bit, just over 70% more food at this time of year than we did uh, the year prior. What about the CERB? I mean, for many people, that's sort of keeping their head above water. Keeping their head above water. But if you think about what the average uh, rent is in the city for a two-bedroom apartment, it's just under $2,000. That, that leaves, you know, a couple hundred bucks to be able to pay for um, for everything else. So it really shows the precarity that individuals were having, um, not being able to have savings that lasted more than, you know, a, a month or so. And it, it, you start to look at those numbers and say, well, what's going to happen if nothing changes? Some individuals will go back to work, but for the vast majority, um, the, the jobs will, are not there. Um, to be able to uh, uh, to do that. It's an unfortunate situation that is predicting a downstream effect within the next month or two months where there there is certainly going to be a massive demand on the rent tribunal uh, and and evictions that are uh, inevitable uh, out of out of this. And so we want to do everything we can to, show what the data is saying to different levels of government. As soon as this report came out, we uh, we followed up with the premier, the, the better members of the federal government, as well as the city, and offered the opportunity to go through the data and the research's uh, recommendations from it. So evictions, we know that this is going to be a problem in the upcoming uh, months ahead. So what is the best way for us to be able to uh, uh, balance off landlord needs to be able to uh, to make perhaps their mortgage payments well, at the same time with the incredible uh, demands that somebody without an income uh, has in terms of their obligations. 
So looking at uh, um, ways to be able to prevent that, that might include rent banks or temporary deferrals, you know, making sure that in the recovery, we look at stimulus packages that will provide long-term relief to uh, people experiencing poverty. So that might mean uh, making sure that it's not a roads and bridges kind of stimulus package necessarily, but rather affordable housing and low-cost transit. Or perhaps now is the time that we start thinking about a uh, national uh, child care strategy, which would allow for individuals to return to work as uh, as quickly as uh, as possible. So okay. those are those are the uh, things that we're, uh, we're we're looking at right now. Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Heather in Toronto, who told us about how her mother suffered a horrible experience in long-term care during the COVID-19 lockdown. Just after Mother's Day, I called and I said, how is my mother doing? I said, well, she had a fall. She got a cut on her head and she was limping a bit, but we're going to keep an eye on her. She seems fine. And then we went to see her at the window, and they had her in a wheelchair. Now, she had been walking before that with a, with a walker. I said, why is she in the wheelchair? Well, you know, she said her, her hip is sore because she's 92, and they said she was tired and she likes to be in the wheelchair. I went, okay. And then a month later, she's still in the wheelchair. They said to me, well, we sent in for portable x-ray machine just to recheck her hip just in case because we did not see the fall. And it came back. She's got a broken hip. Oh, she had been there seven oh weeks with a broken hip <clears throat> in the chair. And they had been changing her, putting her into pants all the time with a broken hip. Now, they never told us they were getting a portable x-ray machine. And we only found out because they had to call us to say, we think she needs surgery. She had the surgery. She was in there, ended up for like three weeks, heavily drugged oh, on hydromorphone. And she had lost 15 pounds. And by the time she got back to the home, and I actually saw her two days ago, she is basically not there anymore. Thank you so much for calling, Heather, and we hope your mom's condition improves. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six four one six three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.